winning side. A series of dialogues about winning teams, such as diversity and inclusion, creating a social impact and leading change. Welcome to the first episode of The Winning Side. The episode focuses on diversity and inclusion. Our title is Women in the Boardroom. The episode is based on a live event at the University of Cambridge Library and is sponsored by the Rising Tide Initiative. Highlights of the event are as follows. So are our boards representative enough? The boards now play a fundamentally different and absolutely essential uh, role. Her cabinet, so her executive officers, and all but one are male. Identified with a bit of imposter syndrome. Uh, it's a special place in hell for women, <laughs> <laughs> senior women that don't support other women for the organisation. I think, you know, that's a big responsibility. Board service can be um, a brilliant way to... The image that we have of boards is old, grey-haired, Men. A lack of board diversity is often a symptom of other problems within the organisation. Hello and good evening. We need to talk diversity and inclusion. I'm Sarah and I'm a banker in London, but I'm originally from Pakistan. I'm currently doing an executive MBA at the University of Cambridge and I'm a women's officer at the Graduate Union, rather was, for 2019. So today, I would like to bring together our amazing panelists and start a dialogue as to why do we need diversity in the boardrooms. Our event would start off with we'll introduce our panelists to come on stage and talk about diversity in the C-suite, followed by the Q&A and networking. So I'd like to call upon Julia. Julia is a director on the management board of Women in Banking and Finance. She heads marketing and diversity at the Pfizer Group. So that's two hats that she wears and wears them brilliantly. Julia, please come on. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sarah, for that lovely introduction and a great pleasure to be here today. I'd like to introduce Angela Single. Angela is a non-exec director in digital strategy and transformation, uh, Cambridgeshire and Peterborough Foundation Trust. She chaired a joint Department of Health and Industry Initiative in the UK 3 million lives. Over two decades of experience in health and technology market is what Angela brings on today. And she's had uh, roles in Global Business Development Director in, as in, in BT Health and has advised several health tech startups. Thank you, Angela. Thank you. Thank you. I would next like to invite David Wilson. David is a director of global strategic programs at Grant Thornton International. He's a passionate advocate for the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, something I'm very passionate about as well, and particularly the gender equality goals. He brings with him two decades of experience of working with boards globally in the UK, North America, Africa, and Middle East. 
across the private sector and public sector and voluntary sector. So David, thank you. And now we have Dr. Michelle Ryan. She is the president governing board of Santa Clara Unified School District in California, US. She currently works in corporate learning and development in the Silicon Valley and has worked with companies such as Google and Applied Materials. She has extensive experience in education sector, corporate learning and development, and is my EMBA colleague. So, Michelle, thank you for coming. And then we have Dr. Simon Lemon. Simon is um, a very special uh, panelist because he is a professor uh, for an executive MBA. He's a director for MBA program, Judge Business School, and he's a subject matter expert in corporate governance. He has a long-standing interest in business management and role of business in society, in Asian and in global markets. He's the winner of Cambridge Teaching Prize for pioneering new methods of learning, and we've seen that. So please come over, Simon. Um, I'd like to share with the audience that most of the questions for this panel discussion have come from uh, a survey which was distributed earlier. And, um, um, and yeah, we'll start from there. So, so we'll start off talking about each one of us, our stakeholders in the board. So are our boards representative enough? So for starters, Simon, we'd like to ask you, to share some thought on do boardrooms even matter? And is, if at all, there is a secret source for a representative board? Okay, thank you very much. Um, so the question where the boards matter, there's, there's actually been quite a lot of um, change in ideas about what boards represent and how important they are over the last 20 or so years. Um, I think when I st first started um, actually acting on a board um, and uh, thinking about boards, there was an idea that they're just the, the kind of top level of management. Um, that is no longer the case. The management is, is, of course, really, really important, but boards now play a fundamentally different and absolutely essential uh, role in uh, organisations, but also within society. Boards are responsible for the direction and control of companies. Um, it's really important to bear that in mind, the direction and control of companies. Um, in effect, what that means is they have three key purposes. They um, need to make sure that the strategy of firms is appropriate. They don't necessarily make the strategy. What they do is they um, develop it and they um, authorise the strategy for, uh, for the firm. Secondly, they need to make sure that the companies are held accountable. Um, that raises lots of important questions about accountable for what and to whom. Um, we'll obviously go into these in, in, in more detail during the panel discussion, but accountability of organisations is absolutely um, uh, critical nowadays. And then they're responsible, finally, for, for managing the managers, making sure that the people who are running the companies um, on a day-to-day -day basis um, are doing the right thing, that they're, they're not um, uh, running companies uh, in their own interests, and they're not necessarily prioritising anyone's set of stakeholders' uh, uh, interests. So boards have this really, really, really important role now. It's not just about management. What that means is um, diversity is critical. Along all of those particular, particular elements, those three elements, we've got to make sure that boards um, are diverse so that they can make sure that companies are held to account, make sure they perform well. 
uh, and make sure that they have good strategies. Thank you. And is there a secret sauce? There's a secret sauce. <laughs> Diversity is a secret sauce, and I think we'll probably develop this over the course of the, 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 the next few questions, but it really, really is critical. i would certainly develop that later on myself. Thank you. To hear from the other panellists. <laughs> <laughs> so now, um, this event is from the rising tide, and we have three um, uh, board members um, who are making waves, I would say. <laughs> so please share your personal journey. Did, did the boards come to you or you went to the boards to, to, bring, to bring diversity onto them? So may, uh, so Angela, <laughs> would you like to start? So um, I'm both a trustee on a local charity. I'm just about to be chair in a local uh, charity in Cambridgeshire, uh, but I'm also, as you said, a, a non-exec director on um, a lo the local NHS Trust Board. And for the NHS Trust Board, they, not the Trust Board itself, but um, an organisation called NHS Improvement approached me to join their trainee programme. So uh, the NHS is, 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 um, has highlighted, as many other organisations, that they don't have enough diversity on their trust boards. So um, I was approached and was fortunate enough to go on what they call their next direct scheme. And it, you are matched with a local or a, a NHS trust. And then you have a mentor on that uh, board and you have regular training sessions by uh, the NHS England. So that was my journey. I had a year being attached to the local NHS Trust, and then they um, asked if I would stay on with a portfolio of digital transformation uh, as a associate director. So it's not a full director, it's a non-voting director, but that's been my journey, and my next um, part of the journey will be a full board member uh, to an, an NHS Trust. And for my trustee role, I was approached by um, uh, a friend on the board who felt that I was had fit some of the things they were looking for in um, digital transformation in the, in the charity as well. Thank you. Michelle. Oh, um, so I actually will we'll be serving on two boards soon. Um, but the nonprofit, yes, <laughs> the nonprofit uh, like yours, they actually did have a, when I met with them, um, had a very uh, explicit interest in having a diverse board. Um, and so that's why uh, she reached out to a, a women's leadership group I'm in. Um, but the board I serve on now where I'm the board president is the school board. Um, in the U.S., uh, every every public school, um, the state-sponsored schools, um, is governed by a, a local school board. Um, it could be anywhere from a one-school district all the way to something like New York City, where there's a million students that are um, uh, in that school district. Uh, our, most boards in the U.S. are elected, so it's an elected position that you go to the voters. Uh, I had a friend who was already serving on the board and felt like the district wasn't making enough progress. So she was like, come on, run for the board. And I was like, oh, please, <laughs> I don't want to get involved in politics this year. Um, I had a background in teaching, um, but I, I went ahead and decided to run because I saw... Um, I got involved in politics on a local issue, and I saw some of the same things happening in the school district. So I took on, and I ran against a woman. She was the current board president. I was a first-time candidate um, and uh, ended up, wasn't sure how I was going to do, but ended up beating her by 12 percentage points, which was a kind of a landslide in, a, in politics in the area. Um, we do have a, a, a slightly diverse board. Um, it's, it's, we're a seven-member board. We're four three. Uh, four men, three women. Um, but I was just, I'm actually doing my, my individual project for our MBA program um, on uh, women in court and board leadership. Had a great call last week with um, 
someone who works in the in the area as well. And um, we were talking about how there's a lot of industries, and teaching and education is one of them, where there's lots of women. You know, women are the vast majority at the school and classroom level. But as you go up <laughs> higher in the levels of management, um, women don't seem to be there. And I think about our school district where we just hired a female superintendent last summer. She started last summer. Um, but I look at her cabinet, so her executive officers, and all but one are male. Um, and so it's an interesting um, interesting dilemma and an interesting perspective. Thank you. And to you, Basel? Um, I'm on the board for women in uh, banking and finance, which is a, a non-profit mostly run by volunteers. We have about 5,000 members um, across the UK. <coughs> I've been a, a member for a number of years and then um, applied for a, a voluntary role to join the team of the board director who is responsible for marketing um, and typically the roles are sort of a three-year commitment and when um, that role became available I was approached to um, to take the role and I think partly because I hadn't put myself forward I sort of identified with a bit of imposter syndrome um, I definitely think that sort of non-profit board service can be um, a brilliant way to gain um, senior leadership experience, which is obviously transferable um, back to the corporate sector, and it teaches you governance, um, and it's also a brilliant way to be able to give back from. Would you say your board is diverse? Well, I, I think probably the name slightly gives it away. Um, it's overwhelmingly female, but um, we have an advisory board um, and patrons who, um, and we have um, gender um, diversity um, across there, and we've just changed our constitution to encourage male allies to, to join the membership. And as a result of that, we've got our first um, male um, representative on the board, um, which is great. And the other thing that we're um, really focusing on at the moment is um, black, Asian, and minority um, ethnic group representation, which again, we've achieved at advisory and, and patron level. Um, but we really need to mirror um, across the rest of the board. Thank you. Angela, coming back to you, would you say the NHS Trust Board shows? So I think it's getting there. So I think the scheme <laughs> such as the one I've been on, um, certainly the gender diversity is there. So we have four women and four men. But certainly, our, just as you were saying, our, our BME is not representative at all. And actually, as a board, it's, it's really been on our agenda. Um, we've been doing a lot of work with um, in, in the organisation with bringing more um, uh, minority um, through the organisation because actually neither at board level or through senior management in the organisation do we have that representation. So it's something that both on our agenda and through the organisation, though no, I would say definitely not yet, but getting there and um, the NHS is really striving. It's just as an education. Yeah. That was actually the other yeah. industry we talked about was healthcare. Yeah, yeah. Edu- so just in education, healthcare, uh, you have a large female work for- workforce and obviously a, a large BME um, workforce too and it's really important that that we talked about role models you know to see role models at Mm. board level and actually our last board meeting we had a great um challenge actually from one of the members of staff who had was shadowing our um fd she was from um a nation background and she actually challenged our board because we're all sitting there around with white faces and she's saying why is that so so it's it's definitely being talked about we're not there yet okay thank you so david um, 
what do you think you know are the key challenges to address gender diversity in the boardroom especially because you have experience across multiple and global uh, sort of segments and regions <laughs> Well, I think I've seen three factors that might be described as challenges. I think the first thing is sort of psychological factors. And one of those is linking back to Julia's point about people hiring people who are like themselves. I think also linked to that, there can actually just be a lack of imagination amongst existing board directors. Um, they've got where they are by doing things in certain ways. So there is a resistance to change. I think the second thing I've seen coming through in dialogue is sometimes a feeling that in order to improve diversity, there's a need to have a trade-off or compromise some other dimension. So that might be, for example, industry expertise. And personally, I believe that's, that's false. I can say there has to be a trade-off. Um, I think the third thing I've seen is that um, a lack of board diversity is often a symptom of other problems within the organisation, particularly around leadership and succession planning. So I think that those are three key challenges I've observed, um, and that's across different regions. It's not specific to, to uh, one part of the world. Okay, that's, that's good to know. Angela, would you like to uh, give your view on that? So um, I, I, I would totally agree with, with David. I think um, we, so <laughs> previously, we are certainly on NHS boards, we wouldn't have had even the um, the male-female diversity. You know, we, we traditionally had a large number of, of males on, on the board. And actually, it's having both the opportunity, and, and I do think the organisation has to recognise it and make, make changes. So I certainly would not have got to this position without having the support and training from NHS England. You know, the fact that they reached out and are continuing to reach out for these training programmes, that's, that's giving you that, because one minute you're... I'm quite senior in industry, but to take to take that experience and, and put it into an, into an NHS board, I think I needed support to do that. I think time and time again, we need that. So I think um, we really need to be able to offer those types of opportunities. I think the boards have to recognise it. There has to be a mechanism to, to do that. And But I also think you need um, to feel like look outside the comfort zone because actually... The NHS, for example, previously found working with industry quite challenging. They, they didn't know to handle that. They didn't know how to engage. And so I think it is also that thinking outside the box type of mentality, and going back to saying not, not, not employing the same old, same old. And so that, that diversity, we have people on the board who um, come from uh, a, a, a motor, motor industry, come from, G, um, large, from Kodak, and but also that there are people in those industries that are being promoted mm. so that then can come across into something like an NHS board. So I think it has to be um, a, multi, a multi-stakeholder approach because it's not going to be one, one size fits all. That's a very valid point. Simon, would you like to add? Um, yes, I think there, there has been great progress, mm-hmm. um, but... I don't want to throw too much of a span but it really is not um, fast enough or deep enough. Um, I, I mean, I actually think it's very positive having this sort of um, forum. Thanks, everyone, for, for coming. But it, it should we, we should also be, you know, looking behind the numbers. Um, it's not just the numbers. <coughs> there, there, there has been some progress. The first... Um, 
real discussion, substantive discussion about women on boards took place in 2010, so 10 years ago now. This was with the Davis report. Um, and it was a sort of response to things that were going on in Europe at the time. Um, particularly Norway had decided to introduce a quota. Um, they, they thought that um, you should have 40% uh, women on, on boards. Um, the UK pushed back from that um, and said, it's going to take time, we've got to bring people up through the ranks and so on and so forth. Um, so let's have a target in 2020, so this year, um, of 33%. Um, so in 10 years, we've gone from about 12.5%, it was in uh, between 10 and 12% uh, in 2010, uh, just up to um, 30% in October last year, 2019, just about, just over 31% now. And this is in FTSE 100 companies, okay? So there's a, been a focus on FTSE 100 companies. If you look at the FTSE 350, it's actually gone down recently in the last few years. Um, if you look at the number of senior managers in organisations, that's actually gone down in the last two or three years. Uh, it's down at 19% um, in, <coughs> in listed companies. Um, so it seems to me that people are looking at these kind of headline targets and thinking, OK, we need to tick the box, make sure that that happens. Mm. Um, but whether there's any real kind of substantive change happening is something that really needs to be questioned, really, really, really deeply, deeply needs to be questioned. Um, and it also then raises, I mean, also the Hampton Alexander report, which uh, Julie mentioned, is absolutely shocking. I mean, it's, you, put, you, you said it very nicely, but it, it should make everyone really angry, I think, that, you know, in 2017, we've got directors of companies saying, women are not smart enough to be on boards. Companies are too complex. I mean, how's that make you feel? I know how it makes me feel. Um, and I'm not a woman. Um, I think it's, you know, it's, it's, it's really, really kind of outrageous. So I think those, you know, the UK has made some progress. But if you look at France, France in 2017, they, they introduced a quota of 40%. They got to 43% this year. Um, Norway's up at 41, 42%. Uh, sorry, 43% in the CAC 40. Um, so it's, still, it's going up in um, other companies. Um, but places like the US, the US is, is terrible, 17%. <laughs> I mean, really, really, really bad. Japan, 9%. Yeah, China, 12%. Look around the world, there hasn't really been a huge amount of, of movement. Um, and it, and it, I think, does call into question the implicit biases that, that we have, um, not just in terms of gender, but in terms of ethnicity, in terms of cognitive diversity, all these sorts of things. There's, there are real problems, I think, um, that, that do need to be addressed. Some changes have taken place, but uh, not enough. I think um, over the next three or four years, we really need to, 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 to take action because it's, it's what society needs um, and picking up some of the points that were made here when you get women on uh, boards when you get ethnic diversity cognitive diversity on boards you get people challenging you get people being curious asking difficult questions and so on and that's how things you know start start changing you've got to challenge the the assumptions that are there kind of institutionalized in in in, in companies Organisations are gendered, you know, there's, there's no question about it. So, this is a change that's got to take place. And I want to oh. echo that, that really, because uh, certainly in the SME field, and I work with a lot of SMEs, <laughs> I would say um, I can think of three companies 
mm. sitting here now, but I was the only woman on the board. So my last executive position, I'm just leaving, there were seven men and I was the only woman. And um, I'm working with an SME at the moment. There's four men and I'm the only woman. And I'm joining a new company and there's five men and I'll be the only woman. And so I completely agree with Simon. It's not at the next level. I think because the footsies, it's the shite, light's been shining on them a bit. But I think there's whole rafts of companies out there who have not made any progress at all. So I was going to add that California has become the first state in the U.S. to actually um, make a quota. Their quota is very low. It's um, <laughs> any, any company that has a headquarters in California as of December 31st in 2019 was supposed to have one woman on the board um, uh, or face a $100,000 fine. Um, and then by uh, December 31st of next year, um, depending on the size of the board, have two or three women. Um, but there was an article in the New York Times uh, a couple a month ago or so that said, you know, some of these companies, especially the, the small startups, are sort of weighing it, saying, you know, it's cheaper for us just to pay the fine than to get a woman on the board. So, um, and then the person I was talking to last week, we also talked about, you know, how much of this is a box checking exercise mm. and how much is the woman actually being able to contribute and um, pointed out, um, and I read, the, I read one of the reports uh, in the UK, but also in the US, the tenure of women who join a board is much shorter. And uh, particularly if they're the only woman on the board, um, they tend to not stay as long. And so there's a whole question there. Um, but one of the things that she also pointed out to me was, um, while the quotas are helping, and Goldman Sachs then came out with the, the statement that they will not do a public offering for any company that doesn't have a woman on the board, but also some of the big, um, and I don't know if there's a parallel in the UK, but... Um, so our public employee unions are big investors in different companies, and they've started to look at board composition and the diversity of the board as a um, because we know more diverse boards are more have more successful companies. Um, if your board is not diverse, if you don't have, for example, if you're a tech company and you don't have someone who's an expert in cybersecurity on your board, that's actually a problem for your long-term value, and they're questioning their investment. And she was saying that that's also a lever. We don't necessarily see in the public, but that's a lever to that's bringing more diversity into boards. Thank you, Julia. Would you like to add? To that? I very much agree with all of that. I, that I read um, a really interesting report about um, the striking circumstances in which women are appointed to boards, um, which I think was University of Exeter um, with the glass cliff phenomenon, and their researchers looked at um, FTSE companies. Um, who had appointed new board members. And for those companies that had appointed women, they were um, more likely to have had a consistently bad performance in the preceding five months versus um, organisations who hadn't appointed a woman. And I, I, this sort of, I think, links back with um, our perceptions of male and female roles in terms of um, you know, women being more kind of caring and intuitive and perhaps better equipped to deal with stressed companies, um, which I just thought was a sort of fascinating <laughs> turn on its head. Um, but I think um, the quota question as well is really difficult because it's one that's so inherently tied up with merit. And um, I think certainly um, that is someone being... Um, Sort of appointed to that role because of their merit, or is it because um, ticking the box? Yes, ticking the box. 
Oh, thank you for that. Um, so now we address the elephant in the room. So how much gender diversity is too much diversity? Is this, you know, the tick in the box exercise um, rather detrimental? Uh, if you're increasing focus on gender diversity, is there a risk that we are losing sight of diversity of thought or diversity of culture for that matter? It's a great question. And I think what, um, yeah, I can talk a little bit about what we use in my organization internally you know, just as a crude measure, we will sort of look at gender balance as being in the 45-55 plan, so male-female mm -hmm. between 45-55, that's how we redefine sort of gender balance. I think one of the things that I'm starting to see coming through, though, and um, may lead to some challenges around this, is we are starting to get people coming into our workforce who are not um, um, happy with binary gender definitions. And so how do we handle that at the same time as not giving people a get out on the question of trying, trying to improve terms of female diversity? We're really at the very early stages of working through through that point. Um, I think on I think you are I think you've got a point that um, if we focus solely on gender diversity, we risk losing other aspects of diversity, socioeconomic, ethnic. Um, in my organisation, one of the reasons we focused, first of all, on gender diversity was simply that it was easier to measure. It was where we had data for the 140 countries we have operations. Um, it's much more difficult for us to collect data on ethnicity, religion, nationality. Um, what that does mean in practical terms is that we sometimes have situations where a country that's quite ethnically homogeneous mm -hmm. um, can sit there feeling virtuous because they have um, you know, good gender diversity. Yeah. Um, whereas like, something I'm working with colleagues in another country, uh, the UAE is a great example, where they actually have tremendously um, ethnically and religiously um, heterogeneous group of employees, but they feel they don't get the same credit as um, some of the Scandinavian countries where it's white, very white, but um, there's a more even um, split between male and females. So I think that's some of the challenges that are coming through is um, actually how can we collect that data to make decisions upon and do it in a way that um, sort of avoids labelling people. The question about personality and diversity of thought is very interesting. And I'm not quite sure um, what we can do in, in that area. Um, I mean, I think there is stuff that could be done with, for example, you know, big five personality testing, different ways of thinking. Uh, but that really is getting into an area that's beyond my expertise right now. <laughs> Thank you, Simon. Perhaps we can leverage from your expertise yeah. here <laughs> from this point. It's, I mean, it's a really, really, um, it's a good question, great question, um, a tricky one to answer. You can answer it in lots of different ways. One, one, one thing um, that I think sometimes comes up when we're talking to regulators and government as well as boards about these kind of issues is um, whether um, I kind of hesitate to say this but I'll say it anyway because this is going to be a provocative place whether um, you know the numbers are saying one thing but actually all you're getting is men in skirts um, with these, these numbers um, some, some people say well right, if you look at the background of a lot of these, these women they're Oxbridge educated yeah they um, come from a typically a particular social class um, they actually aren't very diverse cognitively um, which, you know, is something I think, you know, should, should, should be addressed. 
especially given what I was saying about the, you know, what we know now about the importance of boards. I mean, if you if you really want diversity, if you want, you know, proper diversity, so you get great, you know, argumentation, curiosity, and you know, pushback um, at the top level of, uh, uh, of, of of the company, you have to have this 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 difference. So we do do need to find a way, I think, to to make sure that on our boards we have. Um, this this diverse representation. It can be about ethnicity. It can be about cultural background. <clears throat> certainly about you know diversity of thinking, cognitive background. Um, but they are really difficult to measure. The thing is, as David rightly said, male female yeah. is actually quite easy to to, to 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 measure. So you know we tend to um, measure what's measurable. Um, but I think what we need to start doing is thinking about how to how, how to capture all these other <coughs> There's now a, a discourse going around around intersectionality, which I think is quite useful. So just thinking about um, diversity in, in many different ways, um, and um, maybe that's a you know, that, that that's a route forward. Thank you. Michelle? Well, I was, uh, two things I was thinking. One was uh, I attended a talk last week um, with Tina Chen, who founded the, the Time's Up movement. And uh, the question sort of came up about, well, how, you know, how much is too diverse? And her answer was sort of, well, when we start pointing incompetent women to boards, then, you know, maybe we can have a discussion. Um, but I was thinking also, um, as we talk about cognitive diversity, uh, one of the books I've been reading is Brotopia about um, the development of the tech industry, largely male, um, largely controlled by men. And one of the interesting parallels she draws is that Sheryl Sandberg became uh, part of Facebook fairly early on. And the privacy controls in Facebook um, were much stronger than on Twitter, for example. So um, there was something called Gamergate, where the woman involved was getting death threats and people were stalking her and finding her address and sharing it on Twitter. Um, and uh, because they hadn't set up these privacy controls. They wanted to be a free and open space where anyone could say anything. Um, and Cheryl was, at Facebook, was much more concerned about understanding it from where women might be concerned about sharing information, where people could tag you and you couldn't untag yourself, things like that. And she was really instrumental in setting up the controls that are that are there in Facebook. Um, and so thinking about what that diversity means in terms of the end product um, as being very important. Thank you. And then with your experience across multiple boards in Europe, Asia, and US, let's read it, David. Do regional factors really impact uh, boardroom performance with diversity? I think you've partly answered that. Um, yeah, I, think, I mean, it does, it does vary. Yeah. Um, I think it's fair to say between countries based on my own observations. I think the other thing, if you're actually focusing on performance, mm -hmm. um, is that I know from working with uh, global boards with many different nationalities on them, um, people bring their own experience of what a board is like in their country, and they assume that's how a global board should work. Yeah. So a colleague from Germany with the supervisory and the, the management board will have yeah. a very different perception of how a board should work than a um, North American colleague. I think one of the characteristics I see a lot from my North American colleagues is they're used to having a CEO and chairman um, who's often a very powerful figure. Mm -hmm. um, in, the, in the UK, maybe a more balanced approach. Um, so one of the things I have observed when I've seen global boards with different nationalities is there's often an education process um, to go through how that particular board 
default to work based on best practice and based on the specific um, national legislation, whatever the, the head office entity is created. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Simon, would you like to add something onto that? Um, so I've, I've had experience on a Japanese board um, as well as a UK board. So just thinking about the Japanese experience, there's, um, I mean, there is clear, in my view, apologies to the Japanese people here, but clear tokenism in, in some countries. Um, you know, so some legislation has been introduced in the last few years in Japan saying that, you know, we ought to have more uh, gender diversity on the board. So, so most companies have found a woman and put her on the board. Um, whether um, she's allowed to contribute or not is a um, is another question. Silent factor. Um, so, so I think um, you know where you are in the world matters uh, uh, enormously. But it then kind of just raises this question about you know quotas and tokenism and all these sorts of things, which I think is a it's a really important issue to to think about and actually to research uh, more of. My my own senses, and this actually comes from interviewing many women who have taken board roles um, over the last 10 years, is that, and there's one person particularly in the front of my mind, I won't say who it is, who, who um, was on the board of Barclays, um, who was approached because they wanted a woman. Um, and her first response was, no, I don't think I'll do that. I don't want to be, you know, to take a board position mm-hmm. simply because I'm a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, she had long conversations and they talked about, you know, the contribution she could make and, uh, and so on. And she decided to take it. And she said, actually, it was a really, really good decision in the end, although it was kind of uncomfortable at first, being one of the, the first women on, a, on this kind of board. Um, because what she was, she was then there. She was in the room. <laughs> she was actually able to, to, to do something. So... She said, you know, you've got to separate the reason for getting there and actually what you can contribute when you're, when you're there. So, you know, to break down the doors mm. is the first thing, like suffragettes in a way, and, you know, people coming into this university. You've got to get in first, and then you can kind of make the change. So it doesn't really matter how you get in. Just kick the door in, <laughs> is my, my, my advice. And once you're in there, then you can start changing the culture and mm. trying to challenge the bias and, uh, and, and, and so on. So in some ways, it's a kind of moot moot point you know yeah. about tokenism and all that kind of stuff just get in there and do it. <laughs> get the representation <laughs> I hope it happens in Japan it <laughs> <laughs> will slowly happen so coming back to Michelle's point uh, that's actually one of our questions that um, Sir Goldman Sachs um, said in Davos um, earlier last month that they will no longer do an IPO for companies with all male uh, with all male votes. What are your thoughts on that, David? Well, I watched the, the interview where David Solomon, the CEO of Goldman Sachs, made the announcement, and mm-hmm. I've got some observations from that. I think, firstly, it was interesting how he positioned it. Mm-hmm. He made it very clear mm-hmm. that his first priority was the Goldman Sachs shareholders. He used that word. Our first priority is... I think he then also positioned it as being, this is the right advice for our clients, so the clients being companies that are IPOing, and then he linked it to um, the performance of US companies that have at least um, one female director. I think 
what he then did after that was then to speak about his personal experience working with Goldman Sachs board. So I think kind of four out of eleven female um, senior director is black, I believe, or um, African African American. Um, I thought altogether that was quite powerful, but I thought it was interesting that at no point was it justified in terms of this is the right thing for society. Mm-hmm. It was very much grounded in good, solid economic arguments. We did also bring in that little bit of emotion, speaking about his own, um, his own experience. Um, I'm not sure if you're going to push me on this, but I, I am actually <laughs> supportive of um, Goldman Sachs' move on that. I, I think it's a, a good thing to do. Um, I, you know, it's the right thing for the clients, but I think it's also the right thing for society. It might have been nice if felt a little more comfortable about making the societal point. We let Julia decide whether we should push, push on that note or not. Um, I think also just really worth noting that um, they will still do IPOs for all male boards because their new policy um, covers board members who um, qualify as diverse um, in terms of race, ethnicity and sexual orientation. So, um, you know, I think it's a really... Um, positive move and I think one that um, reflects that CSR and ESG is becoming increasingly um, prominent. I mean, certainly in financial services, it's huge, um, you know, probably led by the, the recent legislation. Um, so I think it's a really encouraging move and um, I thought it was fantastic that he was linking it um, to the business case when he made the announcement. Um, I think it's so important that we keep banging the drum that this is a business issue and that's why it needs to be part of board governance. It's not a women's issue, it's not HR, it's it's absolutely, it's the business case. Um, and I think if I was going to be very cynical, <laughs> um, I, would <laughs> I would probably make a bit more of the fact that um, the new policy only applies to the US and Europe. Um, Asia was um, remarked in its absence, as was um, Middle East, um, which um, you know, is obviously where there's a lot more work um, to be done. I think I'd be interested to see how much it actually affects their bottom line. I think Bloomberg did some research into the companies that um, Goldman's took public last year and of the 59 companies there was only 18 that didn't have women on the board mm-hmm. and of course some of those might still be diverse in terms of the other characteristics mm-hmm. so I do just slightly wonder how much um, <laughs> so we I'd question. like to see the data <laughs> okay. Would you, Can I develop a couple of things because I think this is a really really important area and something we're going to hear a lot more of mm-hmm. um, in the coming year actually I mean, in fact it, it was a topic of huge debate and discussion at Davos, um, which finished last week. Um, and, it's, and it's to do with you know, the, the power of the investment community in these kind of uh, uh, debates. And the, the Goldman example is a really, really good one. But arguably a more important one is the recent um, kind of announcements from Larry Fink of BlackRock. BlackRock is the biggest uh, investment company in the world, uh, along with Vanguard and Reliance and so on. Um, and uh, BlackRock has come out saying this is the number one priority for it now. Um, you know, making sure that companies are um, in all of their actions thinking about environmental issues, social issues, governance issues. So these are the ESG uh, ideas. And amongst those, gender diversity is one of those, you know, really, really important um, uh, 
issues that they're going to focus attention on. And they are now asking their analysts to, you know, actively go to the companies and say, you know, what are your policies? What are, you, what are your uh, results here? And that is force. So Larry Fink writes what he calls his letter to CEOs each year, which he did um, two weeks ago. Um, mentioning all of these things and saying that diversity is going to be a priority for them, it's really, really important because they can bring the pressure to the companies. There is then a question, though, which David and Julia were kind of uh, 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 talking about, um, which I think is also very important, whether this is just really serving their own interests. You know, actually, is it because this kind of risk is systemic risk for them. So they're managing these massive portfolios. Um, are ESG and gender issues uh, just systemic risks? So they need to kind of, you know, take care of them to make sure they protect their, um, their ability to generate profit and, and, and money returns. Um, so interesting work there. In the end, it doesn't really matter because they're doing it. Yeah, so it's got to be a good thing. It's got to be a good yeah. thing. I do sometimes question their motives, but you know, <laughs> if the result is good, that's fine. And I think it'll have a ripple effect. I really do. So I work a lot with small small companies and yeah. small investors, and I think it, it'll have that ripple effect. So if that's if the big companies are asking for that kind of diversity to see that in their boards when they are investing, I think that will have a ripple effect right across right across organisations, right down to the SMEs. I think it's a really interesting move. And hopefully it will have that ripple effect. And hopefully it will set a trend. Absolutely. <laughs> well, moving on to our way forward. So what would you like to recommend as a or share, share some closing thoughts on how should we bridge the gap uh, in the boardrooms when it comes to uh, gender diversity? So, Angela, would you like to? Yes, it's something we've talked a lot about at... Um, and my NHS board and we've talked about two different things one is uh, role modeling but also reverse mentoring mm -hmm. so um, we've looked at both of those to see whether or not that's a way of um, increasing our diversity um, and making sure that we uh, give opportunities for mentoring ourselves and we go out and, and talk to people and talk about our story where we're encouraged to share our story about how we get to board meeting but also reverse mentoring is something we've been doing as well so I think it, you ha continually have to be proactive and, and do things like this you know be proactive and, and getting out there and meeting people and talking about your story is really important that's really interesting so have you been involved in the reverse reverse mentoring it's something uh, the, the, some of the other board members have I haven't but it's something okay. I really want to explore going forward wonderful I'd love to hear more about it yeah <laughs> so um Michelle um the couple of things, um, I know maybe similar to the program that you did, there's a lot of, and I think especially connected to um, SB8, it's uh, Senate Bill 826, which is the uh, board diversity law in California. Okay. Um, so lots of uh, universities and other organizations are developing uh, board readiness programs, particularly for women. So the local university, local business school at the Santa Clara University, which is in my hometown, has a board readiness workshop for women. A women's leadership group I'm a part of, I'm doing uh, later this month, I'm going to do a board simulation exercise with them because, again, they're helping women um, to develop the skills that they might need to serve on a board. Um, from my perspective, I think school boards, as I look around, I haven't looked at every one of them. They seem, I, I don't know of a single school board that's um, entirely male, um, but I think in politics in general, um, women 
there is not, you know, beyond the school board level, and my school board is not, it's, it, well, it's a seven-member board, so we're going to be 4-3 of, <laughs> the best we can do is 4-3. Um, but um, moving on from that, there's, you know, women face harder, uh, more obstacles in, in moving on to other offices. And school board is a common place for people to start if they're looking at higher office. Lots of politicians start mm. at the school board level. Um, and so there's some organizations that help women raise money, particularly particularly focused on women, preparing women to run for higher office or to help them raise money. Um, but I think those are areas to look at for diversity in politics um, and leadership there. And simulation exercises sound wonderful. <laughs> Simon? Um, I would really endorse what Michelle said. I mean, I think um, it's, it's true for men and women, um, but I'll say why, particularly for women uh, in, in, in the set. But I think, you know, starting off with something that you, you kind of know and is kind of close to your heart or whatever seems to be quite, quite important if you aspire to uh, board positions. So start with, a, you know, a sports team that you're involved with or a, um, a school or um, a local charity. Um, but don't limit your kind of ambition. You know, see it as a kind of step, stepping stone. I've, I've interviewed many, many um, women uh, board members over the years and actually almost all of them started off with something that was kind of quite close to their, uh, to their heart and kind of locally close to them, but then sort of um, uh, built, built up. Um, <clears throat> I said, I, you know, it's particularly true for women. I think one thing, we talked about it a little bit before, we kind of came up here is 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 um, women tend to lack confidence insofar as it comes to joining boards, um, and you know it's it's not that surprising. I mean, the the, the image that we have of boards is old, grey-haired men, um, um, and they tend to be seen as being kind of quite assertive and um, aggressive, shouty sort of places. Um, that's not conducive to good board business. So, um, you know, we need to kind of, uh, you know, change what's happening on the boards. And one of the ways to, to, to do that is actually to get uh, more women in. In the end, though, um, it's about changing the system. You know, there are practical steps to kind of make, you know, to, as, as I say, break down the, the, the doors. But in the end, it's about changing the system. So I think um, everyone, need, men and women, need to be much more assertive about understanding how gendered organisations are and how gendered particularly boards are um, and just saying that's not good enough. You know, it's, it, it wasn't good enough when, you know, this, this university was, uh, you know, existing in the, in the 19th century um, with all of its prejudice and exclusion. You know, what, why should organisations and boards be acceptable nowadays in that, in that respect? So, um, so, yeah, that's, I think, the way forward. Rise up. <laughs> the, the New York Times article I mentioned uh, talked about companies looking, um, you know, as they're trying to recruit women to fill these roles, um, looking at women who have had board service on a nonprofit or a school board. I mean, my school board, our, you know, our annual budget is $280 million. We have $1.1 billion in yeah. bonds outstanding. So we manage quite a bit of mm -hmm. finances, and, um, so, yeah. and, and we're not alone in that. Yeah. That's quite yeah. some figures. Yeah. <laughs> well... Yeah. Thank you very much. And I would like to open the floor to um, uh, for the questions from the audience. So we have mics. Thank you. <laughs> no, 
So actually, I have a question about the last question. So that now the economic growth, growth is slowing down. Basically, the companies are moving from being focused on how to grow to how to make it, how to make the companies more profitable. So if we're talking about growth, so yes, it some kind of like involves imagination and creativity on the things. It's like, yes. I think that this is where the woman can actually contribute a lot. But if we are talking about like profitability, so it's basically usually cutting costs and make the business more operational. And I think it's like a bit more like on the male side. So what do you think about that one, this trend, how it can influence the ability of women to be on the board if, like, if there are like any kind of impact coming from that one? Who would like to take that? I'm happy to have a quick go, which yeah. is, which is, I mean, I think um, there is evidence to show that um, in early stage, in the early stages, companies need to have very, very clear focus on developing their technology and making sure that um, the business, you know, takes advantage of the, of the markets it's in and, uh, and so on. It's very, very competitive. It doesn't really matter whether you're a, a man or a woman, but going to, to Michelle's point, you know, what we've seen in the tech industry, particularly in the States, is you know, lots of men doing that kind of quite well. And the growth, as you say, has been massive in, in uh, many cases. Um, but actually, in the later stages of development of companies, um, and I think you're right in, in terms of developed economies, you can, you, can, you can kind of say the same things. What you need is, is, is not that drive and, you know, um, aggressive competitiveness um, at, the, at the top of the company so much. What you need is um, you need people who know what's going on in society and are able to bring those conversations into the board. And, and that means, you know, diversity. It means questioning and so on. That's what we see. If we look at I mean, it's, it's, it's a little bit technical, but if we look at um, the, the way that dual-class shares perform um, uh, over time, so you can issue shares with control rights and non-control rights, um, and typically the Facebooks and the, you know, the Ubers and so on, they, they favour splitting the shares so that people who founded the company have this control and are able to kind of continue to drive the growth forward. Uh, and that seems to work for a time, but then it actually peters off. Um, and what we're seeing in companies like Facebook and Uber is actually you need to diversify the board because the game has changed. Yeah? Growth is not the same as sustainability and um, you know, general uh, doing, doing good things for the, for, the, for, uh, for the firm. So I think you're absolutely right. I think there is an argument to say diversity is really important for later stage companies and later stage economies. Oh, Sorry. <laughs> Two pens worth. <laughs> thank you. Hi, thank you for your talk, guys. Um, I was wondering what, how you think women can escape from tokenism on boards, because I know a lot of times, like, they will be put in roles of, like, head of people or head of HR, and, like, how can they... You talked a little bit on that, but if you can just expand... Well, I think, it, you know, in some of the research I've been doing, it's uh, they talk about you know, um, looking at roles where women traditionally 
can move to the highest role in that kind of um, role within the organization, so HR, for example, and that it can be very CEO dependent on whether that person, the chief people officer, is considered part of the executive team or not. Um, I, I don't know that I have an answer to that, but I think that's... Um, Maybe someone else can take it from there. <laughs> I don't know. I, I also think it's, uh, if you're talking about um, executive roles as opposed to non-executive roles, I think it also depends on your CEO. So I can think of a large technology company I worked for that actually had a woman CEO, and so she was very pro bringing other women up through the ranks at, at any type of, um, at, you know, any type of role because she had risen the, through the ranks. It was a very male-dominated organisation, but she had risen to the to the top and she was really, really supportive of other women uh, rising to the top of the organisation as well in executive roles. And I think that's what I mean about we have responsibility when we do become either executives or non-execs or both or senior managers to put support back down the organisations for our female colleagues. There is, uh, I, I belong to a female network and there's a little saying there that uh, there's a special place in hell for women, <laughs> senior women that don't support other women to the organisation. I think, you know, that's a big responsibility, but I passionately believe that we do and should share our story and our support and offer mentoring. So you have, I think as we get to those senior roles, as example of that CEO, we have a role to support other women getting through the organisation yeah. as well. And I hope we means men as well. Yeah. <laughs> but I think to HR specifically, I mean, that was one of the things I've been looking at is that um, boards now, as they talk about diversity, um, it's also diversity of experience. And so um, the woman I talked with last week who run, uh, is part of an organization, How Women Lead, um, that companies are now thinking we actually need someone who has experience in HR to be on the board, um, to be able to advise on those issues and to have that, that, that perspective um, because of things that were, I mean, I, I think particularly about tech industry, you see some of the CEOs that have had to walk away because there was no one there at the board level who was like, you can't be doing things like that. Yeah, I think that was more in respect to like, if there's a woman on executive, like she's stuck in HR, like not that there are It's true. There, I think the, the number, I just actually uh, had made a note of it. I think um, in the UK, um, about 10% of CFOs are women um, and less than 5% of CEOs, uh, women uh, in the UK. One is a Cambridge grad, took a business school grad, <laughs> Alison Whitbread at uh, uh, Britain at Whitbread, who's doing a, a fantastic job. Um, but you're right. I mean, it tends it tends to be um, w- women are not in those kind of the hard, you know, the strategy, the, the you know finance and you know accounting kind kind of positions. And it's something that does need to be addressed. And it's to this point. It's not just at the boards. I mean, boards is, is important because it, you know, it's, it's, it's visible, but it's in the, all of the ranks kind of coming up. We've got a problem, which we haven't mentioned either, of, of women being overboarded. Um, and also they, are, they tend to have non-exec roles. So, that, so the data looks like, oh, it's going in the right direction. It's nice. We're making progress. But actually, it's the same women just taking multiple positions, which, of course, makes it even more difficult for them to contribute properly because, you know, the current thinking is, you know, you shouldn't really have more than probably three um, board, board roles if you're going to do them uh, effectively. So, um, you know, we need, to, we need to celebrate the changes that are taking place. They're fantastic, but um, there's a whole lot more work that needs to be done. I guess just on our 
this is just once again based on some experience of what I've seen, but where I have seen very successful female leaders who've gone up to C-suite roles or C CEO roles and they've come through a, an HR kind of background, what they've often done is, because so many organisations now are matrix organisations, um, so, you know, they're maybe split by geography, function, market, they've always done HR plus something. So they'll have responsibility for a geography or they'll have a P&L responsibility, a profit and loss responsibility. So we can actually show that they're involved in the commercial side of the business because mm -hmm. um, that gives them, essentially, it's power. It gives them more power than if they were solely just um, in the, what you might call the HR silo. And also to add on, um, I was to talk at Downing the other day and we had the um, UN climate crisis um, representative out there and she was saying that to your point that women are uh, you know leading areas like ESG or education which were considered more okay or HR more okay for women but the way they have created those incubators and shined out of it to all the panelists points earlier you know it's about getting that first step in the door and then spreading your wings across so Given uh, Simon was mentioning that 2010 was the first time the conversation about women in boardroom actually became serious, we are just 10 years ahead now. So I think gradually the wings are going to spread across because they've proved them in these areas. Hi, um, I come from a science background and I had my own company, I was a CEO, and I was tired of running it alone, and I shut it down after 12 years. And, uh, and my husband is, is a business investor here in, in SM, uh, startup companies. One of the things that I, I seem to understand is women that sit on these boards mainly come from a business background. And I wonder if you have any information in your research uh, of women who come from different backgrounds that don't understand much about finance or economics, but for example, I'm also I'm a biologist and a psychologist, and I think that I would have a lot to contribute on, in terms of animal behavior or <laughs> human behavior, which are animals. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I, I wonder if you have data on uh, the, the, the educational background of these women the sitting boards? Um, so as, as far as I know, there isn't, um, that, that kind of research hasn't, hasn't been carried out. But anecdotally, we know that the women who tend to get uh, board positions in the big, certainly listed companies, um, are kind of quite a narrow group. Um, they, are, they are people who tend to have finance and accounting backgrounds. Um, they are people who uh, tend to have Oxbridge backgrounds. Um, they, um, again, I don't know whether I can say this, they tend to have house husbands, um, things like this. It's, it's um, you know, there, there are anecdotally the, these, these kind of profiles, which are things which, we, you know, I think need to be seriously addressed because we are missing out on a huge number of, really, really talented, really, really experienced people with a diversity of views, which is what is required now in our companies. You know, we absolutely desperately need this. So um, one, of the, one of the problems is that um, appointments 
to the board, I'm talking particularly of uh, listed companies here, but to some extent it relates to uh, big private companies and, uh, and so on. Um, appointments to the board come th from a... Um, there's, there's usually an appointments uh, committee on the, on the board, but it needs to then go to the annual general meeting and voted on by shareholders. Um, so the group, the slate that is presented to the, to the shareholders has to be kind of credible in their terms. Yeah? And what that usually means is they know about finance, they know about accounting, they're able to sign off. One of the key duties you have as a director is to sign off the annual report and account. So you've got to have some kind of financial knowledge. Um, so the system kind of means that those, those backgrounds aren't, aren't appreciated as they should be. But again, that's why we need kind of change um, uh, in, the, in the short term. Do you have any introductory courses at the business school? Of course we do. Yes. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> I'm talking the best courses. <laughs> Francisca, do we have, uh, how many questions can we take? Okay. Two, two more. more. Two more? <laughs> Hi, first of all, just thank you very much for a very thought-provoking discussion and um, certainly left me with more questions, but that's the whole idea. Um, I spend a lot of time working with intrinsic motivation and work in organisations to identify what teams and organisations as a whole have um, missing in terms of some of the motivators. And what's really interesting is that um, I looked probably a few days ago now, at an article, I think it was American actually, that was undertaken, it was a large study, looking at uh, motivators, preferences and values, um, and had identified that male preferences tend to be more commercial um, and more money orientated, whereas the females are more affiliation and connecting with others. Um, and I think my question is with regards to if those things are generally, and I mean, certainly from the work I do, I, I see a very diverse, I see quite a lot of females with that commercial, but the general study identifies that our board's more commercial achievement focus and therefore we need to start looking at the skill sets and perhaps the motivators of the board to address perhaps some of the issues at root cause. Um, well, I think one of the articles uh, Simon sent me uh, talked about like the, the the leadership pathway that uh, that women take as opposed to men as moving into board roles, and that the men, you know, again, not it's not all one, all the other, but tended to have more of a like I'm going to be the chief counsel of this co of a company by the time I'm 40 years old. Like there's a very clear, whereas the women were more focused on the job that they were doing. Um, and just interested in the work and gradually moved up that way and hadn't really set that as a target. And then when I talked to the woman last week uh, who works with women in, and board leadership in the U.S., she said her, her experience of, of talking with women board members sort of mirrored that as well, um, that they weren't necessarily focused on that goal. I'm, I'm going to get on that board by the time I'm, you know, 45 or whatever. And what are the benefits? Right. Perhaps some of the motivators are missing. Yeah. 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 That's, that's what I had to add to that question. Does it answer your question? Yeah. Hi, I don't have a grand introduction, but I was just um, wondering what your thoughts might be 
um, in with regards to young people being in terms of growth and being the next generation or what key messages um, on this topic would you have um, if you had the chance to um, talk to that demographic? Get ready for the vote. <laughs> <laughs> I have an opinion on this because um, one of the things we've not talked at length about is activism. So we touched a little bit about upon Goldman Sachs and you know, there's a, I think there's a big role for activism and providers of capital. You've then got um, activism as consumers, and that's something that um, I think at some point we may see more of, where consumers choose to buy from organisations that are dem- demonstrably more diverse in their boards. But the most powerful piece of activism that I'm seeing coming through at the moment is employee activism. You know, so you've got um, employees at Amazon posting on um, Medium.com, you know, the, the blogging site, talking about how they oppose its um, moves in surveillance technology, warehouse conditions, climate change. And I think that could be um, one of the main drivers, or one of the main uh, mechanisms by which young people can exert change at board level. I think the other thing is just go out and start a company. You know, shape the company in the way you want it to be designed as a young person. Um, I must, many of you will be studying here at Cambridge, which is a great, you know, um, it's a great grip, a great privilege. Mm-hmm. So, you know, do something useful with it. Start a company and put that board together the way you want it. Very solid point. Yeah, I, I, I would really endorse that and say, I, I'm, there's a little nagging voice at the back of me. I did, I did some research in another country looking at um, this kind of thing. Um, it, was, it was actually around employee involvement in um, things going on in, in, in companies. And what we found was um, the youngsters tended to be kind of very outspoken and quite active and so on. But then as they kind of got incorporated into the organisation, got a bit older, got a mortgage, all that kind of thing, it was all kind of tailed off. Um, so... Um, I hope that um, young people now can continue to be really, really active and use, in particular, all of the social media that are around at the moment. This is something that was not around, you know, even seven years ago and certainly wasn't used in the same way that it is now. You now have a channel that can actually um, force people to listen um, so, so, so use all the, the channels of communication that are around at the moment um, and then be active but stay with it, stick with it so when you start getting you know, the jobs in you know, whichever companies you go and work for you continue to kind of <laughs> do things um, don't let it kind of drop off that's my thought on that okay some best practice companies to look at are they doing the right way to do the right way? Um, Diageo. Diageo. Southwest Airlines. Quite it's, like, it's really the companies that are sort of linking it to um, executive pay. And um, Diageo um, has five people who haven't um, complied with and the policies that they put in place for encouraging um, gender balance through throughout the company. So I think it's those sort of um, quite bold um, companies that they've seen successes. Yeah, yeah. I think and, it's also, sorry. No, no. Yeah, well, I think it's also interesting just to look at B Corps. 
because that is systemic change. So we're kind of sometimes talk about the beauty 100, but I think also if you look at the B Corp movement, it's a lot of um, best practices there that even if you don't go down the B Corp certification route, are things that you can take into your own, own business. Yeah. And I'd, I'd say don't believe the hype. Don't believe, to quote public enemy, don't, um, don't always look at the videos and you know fancy brochures and so on because companies are really good at saying they do this stuff they really really are they've got it down to a T um, I, te- I teach a case at the moment around Carillion which collapsed last year it had the most beautiful video about how wonderful uh, it was um, and was just interested in making as much money as it could and screwing the pension fund and screwing the employees and, and so on the thing that you can believe is the tone from the top it's the behaviour of the directors. Yeah? You watch what they do. You watch how they act rather than what they say. Um, I think that's the, uh, that's the key. It's difficult to do unless you've kind of got your eye on uh, things in some detail. But you know, if you're going for a, a job, for example, you know, see, see how they act. You know, see what they're, the what they're actually doing. <laughs> um, I, I can think, and I haven't done a lot of research on these two companies, but they came up in the conversation I had last week um, and both have a similar founding story. Um, Bumble, they're both U.S. companies, Bumble and Stitch Fix, both founded by women, had trouble getting funding, um, and have grown into big companies. Bumble actually apparently has started their own investment um, fund um, to help support other companies like them. Um, and, and Stitch Fix, again, the same thing. They got, they got turned down for funding again and again because most, uh, this came up in, uh, in the Brotopia book, of, you know, men were like, well, why would, who would do that? <laughs> didn't understand the perspective of women. Um, so they didn't fund them. And so they ended up bootstrapping themselves. Um, and I know that their board, one of their uh, board members is someone on my contact list that I'm interviewing in the week or so. So, um, but I haven't looked entirely too much at their board, so I, I, can't, I don't know that I can recommend them as best practices, but I know they have <laughs> similar uh, founding stories. Well, thank you very much. And uh, thank you to Francisca and her team as well. Thank you for, you, for the, to the lovely panelists for starting an amazing dialogue. And I hope that uh, the audience here and myself, we take back some interesting uh, takeaways from this dialogue. And uh, uh, in line with the rising tide, we, we step out of here and make some waves in the world of diversity and inclusion. Uh, and lastly, I'd really appreciate if you could give us some feedback. We also release the podcast for the session uh, on March 8th, International Women's Day. So spread it with your wider networks. And uh, thank you for coming. Welcome to the